Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm going to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. Can you ever recall getting your fasting insulin level tested during an annual exam? Now I have a feeling the answer is no. And full disclosure, I haven't had mine tested either, but I plan to run that lab test later this month and I will share why in just a moment. Now instead, when it comes to looking at my metabolic health and my blood sugar levels, I do what most people do. For the past five years, I have relied on my metabolic panel, my lipid panel, my hemoglobin A1C, even my fasting glucose to really get a sense of my metabolism, my blood sugar, and to kind of insinuate what may be going on with my insulin levels. Now, when it comes to the gold standard, which is the hemoglobin A1C, this test reflects your average blood sugar level for the past two to three months. Specifically, the A1C test measures what percentage of hemoglobin proteins in your blood are coated with sugar, meaning they're glycated. Now, the higher your A1C level is, the poorer your blood sugar control and the higher your risk of diabetes and diabetes complications. Now, what we're looking for when we're looking at a hemoglobin A1C, since this is the gold standard here in the U.S., is you want a hemoglobin A1C at 5.5 or under. Now, technically, 5.7 is prediabetes or denoted as prediabetes, and 6.2 and above is denoted as type 2 diabetes. But again, we are finding when you are working on optimal blood sugar levels and optimal metabolic function, we definitely want under 5.5, ideally closer to 5 when it comes to that hemoglobin A1C. Now, what you're going to find out today is that testing our fasting insulin can provide an even greater picture of our metabolic state many years ahead of what we consider to be this gold standard hemoglobin A1C and fasting glucose. And here's why. Every organ system in your body has a sensitive relationship with the hormone insulin. And because that relationship is so important, when insulin becomes dysfunctional, including insulin resistance, it becomes a contributing cause to many of the biggest chronic conditions. I'm talking heart disease, diabetes, infertility, dementia, and so much more. And unfortunately, insulin resistance affects more than 133 million Americans and potentially up to 88% of U.S. adults. I want you to just stop and think about that for a moment. 88% of U.S. adults in the U.S. are struggling with some level of insulin resistance. And you have to think like, oh my gosh, is that you? Is that me? So given insulin's importance, you'd think this vital hormone would be something we'd test for and monitor frequently, but it's not, which is a bummer. So I want to go into what insulin is really doing. So insulin is a chemical messenger that circulates through the bloodstream and triggers important physiological events. It's produced by the beta cells in your pancreas and it affects every single cell in the body, including your bone, brain, and muscle cells. Now as an anabolic hormone, insulin promotes growth in bones, skeletal muscle, and other tissues. In the brain, there is evidence that it governs cognition, neuroplasticity, and memory processing. In the kidneys, it helps regulating sodium absorption and homeostasis. And in the liver, insulin synthesizes alternative energy sources such as glycogen and fatty acids. But hands down, the most important function insulin serves is helping your body pull energy from food. See, when you eat a meal, your digestive tract breaks down carbohydrates and produces, among other things, a simple sugar called glucose. Now, I know we talk about glucose on the show, but we're going to dive into it today. 
Now, as glucose enters the bloodstream and rises above its baseline, the body sends a signal to the pancreas to create and release insulin, a hormone that takes glucose out of the blood and feeds it to the body cells, specifically skeletal muscles and fat cells. Now, insulin is needed to shuttle glucose from your blood into muscle and fat cells, where it can be used for energy or stored for later use energy. Now, insulin also signals the liver to take in that excess glucose and store it as glycogen and to use it for later on. We're going to get into that in just a moment. Now, when excess glucose has been accounted for and we get it back down to that baseline, your insulin level falls back to its baseline again too. Now, insulin and glucose levels are tightly linked in this way because both are necessary to fuel your body on a cellular level. Glucose itself is a main source of energy in the body, especially for your brain and your muscle cells. Now, this dance between insulin and glucose that happens every time you eat is your body striving to closely regulate your blood glucose levels, I mean, consistently, right? This is the dance that has to keep on happening. Now, without insulin, your blood glucose levels would stay elevated for much longer periods, and that would be very, very bad. This is why people with type 1 diabetes must take insulin every day via injections or a pump. So for example, chronically elevated blood sugar levels cause inflammation that can damage your blood vessels, your kidneys, your eyes, and your nerves. This is why diabetes can lead to many, many health complications. Now, your body wants to maintain a healthy level of blood glucose to keep you healthy and to keep all systems functioning optimally. However, due to a number of factors, the biggest factor is being a steady increase in carbohydrate consumption over the course of many years. The cells can't burn through the stored glucose that they are full of, right? They're just to the brim with stored glucose. Because of this, cells downregulate the receptor sites that insulin can bind to, not allowing for more glucose in as a form of protecting themselves. As a result, the pancreas releases more insulin insulin so that insulin pushes the glucose into the cells whether the cell wants it or not. Now with insulin resistance, a greater amount of insulin is needed to get the same amount of glucose into those stuffed cells. Insulin is no longer able to push glucose efficiently inside of the cell and the cell becomes numb to the effects of insulin. This is, right, insulin resistance. So imagine insulin is a train pusher at the train stop, shoving and shoving more people also known as glucose, into an already packed train filled with people. And as the condition worsens over time, insulin levels can remain elevated even when you haven't eaten anything. And this is called hyperinsulinemia. This process can take many years to unfold. Or we can even see it as young as toddlers, right? That is how crazy hyperinsulinemia has become in this country. And that's why high insulin levels today may suggest serious health problems in your future. Even if your glucose levels are currently normal and you have no diabetes or prediabetes diagnosis, that doesn't mean that you don't have a situation with hyperinsulinemia. Now, one study, for instance, high insulin levels preceded high glucose by as much as 13 years, meaning you could have hyperinsulinemia for 13 years before you start to see it on a fasting blood glucose test, right? And that was 13 years we could have done something about it. Another study found that hyperinsulinemia can predict glycemic dysfunction 24 years in advance. Ooh, right? So you can imagine getting in front of this by seeing what our fasting insulin levels are makes a huge difference. Now, unfortunately, most doctors will not test you for high insulin. 
Instead, they'll check for high levels of glucose and its proxy like hemoglobin A1c. But by the time those downstream symptoms appear, the damage may have already been done by decades or years of hyperinsulinemia. And therein lies a bigger problem. When we are in a state of hyperinsulinemia, when insulin levels remain high all of the time, insulin becomes a fat storage hormone, pushing more glucose into the liver and forcing the liver to turn that glucose into triglycerides to make room for more incoming glucose. And this could be happening many, many times during the day. Now, over time, this leads to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and stubborn weight gain around the belly and visceral organs, which we are seeing in younger and younger children every single year. Now, just yesterday, Kingston and I were at the park on the swings. He loves the swings. And there was a very overweight three-year-old who was eating a handful of chocolate chip cookies while on the swing. And I couldn't help but think of the insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia that this little toddler was already experiencing at such a young age. Hence, he was probably carrying, I would say, 20 pounds of extra weight on his little frame. Now, commonly, people assume if blood sugar levels are too high, the problem must be that the body needs more insulin. But it's not that there is a lack of insulin production. Rather, the excess insulin the body is making is not working properly. Since insulin is considered a major hormone player, as we talked about earlier, its effects have just, it's compounded over other hormone systems and other organ systems, including our reproductive system. So I want to just share a short list of serious health conditions linked to hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance. Probably the biggest one that we know is metabolic syndrome. This is a cluster of risk factors all related to insulin resistance, including high glucose, abdominal obesity, hypertension, low HDL, cholesterol, and high triglycerides. People with metabolic syndrome are a higher risk for cardiovascular disease, blood clots, and stroke, and other dangerous health events. Metabolic syndrome is closely linked with insulin resistance, and again, that hyperinsulinemia. Next is heart disease, which we know is can be caused or accelerated atherosclerosis by triggering the deposits of unhealthy fat, specifically a dangerous form of LDL cholesterol, into the blood vessels by thickening the walls of the blood vessels. Cancer, cognitive decline, which insulin resistance is associated with dementia, cognitive dysfunction, and neurodegeneration. Some research believe that it's due to oxidative stress and other harmful effects of insulin on the brain. And then we've got reproductive issues, right? Insulin resistance is close to a complex relationship of polycystic ovarian syndrome and plays a direct role in fertility complications linked to PCOS. Pregnant women with midterm insulin resistance are also at a greater risk for dangerous complications called preeclampsia and show a greater risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes after they give birth. Now, we also look at fatty liver disease, right? And we talked a little bit about that, right? We know that insulin resistance, we are at a higher risk of developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and high insulin levels plays the number one role in that accumulation. Now, this sobering and incomplete list reveals why insulin levels should be of major concern to everyone, whether or not we currently have prediabetes or diabetes. Insulin plays a decisive role in our overall health, and the sooner we can know what's going on, the better that we can start to make lifestyle changes. By maintaining a safe, controlled insulin level, it may be possible to lower your risk for all of the diseases mentioned above. Plus, there's a slew of other ones that I just didn't even get into. Now, as a society, our metabolic goal should be to reduce glucose spikes 
as much as possible, lower that insulin production, thus decreasing the possibility for insulin resistance. Given the importance of knowing our insulin levels, well, I bet you're wondering, well, what's the level that we should be aiming for when we test for our fasting insulin, right? Because it's important that we know this. Well, the answer isn't so cut and dry. And that's because due to insulin being overlooked for so long, there is no scientific consensus on optimal insulin levels. Now, medical experts take a wide variety of positions on the matter, and a standard reference range has not been established. Isn't that crazy? Now, generally speaking, we know that the lower the levels, the better. And based on some of the newest research, fasting insulin should stay below 10 microunits per milliliter with an ideal between two and eight microunits per milliliter. Now, as you and I know, fasting insulin testing is not typically included as a part of your routine care, at least here in the U.S. Your primary will often only approve or has gotten approval for running a fasting glucose and or hemoglobin A1C annually for your annual exam. And again, that's a bummer and a specific bummer knowing that the current research is showing us that if we can look at fasting insulin level, that we can look into the future, gosh, a decade or two ahead of time, right? So you could imagine if we could start running a fasting insulin test on teenagers, we would get a great sense of what's going to happen to them in their 30s, maybe even their 40s. So luckily, getting a fasting insulin test is fairly easy to do and it's easy for most people to attain. You can either try to request one from your primary care doctor and you can plead a case that, especially if you have a hemoglobin A1C that it is a little bit on the warning sign or your fasting blood glucose is getting higher, it'd be worth having to look at your fasting insulin as well. Or you can work directly with a commercial laboratory. So you can actually go and pay cash and get the test done yourself. This is often what I'm doing. I'm working with a, a laboratory directly to run labs for myself and for my patients. Now, the most common test, a fasting insulin test, requires a basic blood draw like a hemoglobin A1C or like a fasting glucose, right? And it may cost as little as $20, depending on what laboratory you work with. Now, as the name suggests, you'll need to abstain from food for eight hours before your blood sample is taken. So I recommend doing it in the morning right after you wake up. And the test results will probably be available in a day or two and will most likely be listed in micro units per milliliter. There is also a way to infer insulin sensitivity from a standard cholesterol test. So when your doctor tests your lipid profile, the results typically include your LDL, your HDL, and triglycerides. Now, for a directional approximation of insulin sensitivity, just divide triglycerides by your HDL. If you score above a certain cutoff, this may suggest insulin resistance. Now, some researchers have set the insulin resistance cutoff higher at 3.5 for this method, but you could set it lower. You could set it at 2.5 or 3. Other research has found that the score's effectiveness in predicting insulin resistance depends on sex, basically male or female. And still other studies have found that its accuracy would be improved if you had other variables, such as what the sex is, female or male, and waist circumference, that these were accounted for as well. Although there is still open questions about optimal insulin levels, as you can see, we need more information. How is it 2022 and we're still confused on this? You can still get tested and make an informed decision about your overall health. 
Once you have that clear picture of your fasting insulin status, you can make lifestyle choices that can reverse insulin resistance. With over 88% of us as adults struggling with metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance, I believe it is safe to say that adopting healthy metabolic lifestyle habits is a mega win whether you get a fasting insulin test or not. So what I wanted to do to end this episode is share what I consider to be the five biggest habits, like the needle movers, the lever pullers, whether you have insulin resistance or you want to avoid insulin resistance and all of the diseases that come alongside of it. So here are my five habits that not only am I implementing, but my family's implementing that there is solid research on that you can begin to do right now. Now, as I go through these five, I want you to check in and see, are you already doing some of these? Is this something that you're down to implement this week? And I will tell you, I have been tracking my hemoglobin A1C for a while now, and I've been wearing a continuous glucose monitor. And I can tell you by implementing these strategies personally myself, I have seen my hemoglobin A1C get better and better. And I have seen my fasting, my continuous glucose monitoring getting better and better as well. So just a heads up, I'm only anecdotal, but there is research to demonstrate that these five levers, plus the bonus I'm going to share with you in just a second, can make the biggest difference and absolutely worth sharing with a friend or a family member and doing them together. Without further ado, number one, start your morning with a savory breakfast that is protein focused. I'm not gonna lie, most of us are under proteined. And when we have less protein, we are gonna crave more sugar, more starches, more dessert, more refined carbs. So we wanna make sure that we are eating a savory breakfast that is protein focused. And that means avoiding dessert for breakfast because the first meal of the day sets the tone for the next two days. It doesn't just set the tone for lunch and dinner. It's gonna mess you up if you go the dessert route for the next two days. And again, that's gonna drive blood sugar spikes and insulin resistance. So again, you wanna be avoiding muffins, you know, fruit smoothies, cereal, croissants. You know the list. I have a whole little short episode on this. And what I do in order to make this super, super easy for me is I'll either do a protein shake, my bone broth chocolate protein, or I will eat leftovers. So right now in my refrigerator is a bunch of lamb burgers and we already have like a big pre-made salad, a dry salad. So no dressing or avocado or cherry tomatoes on it yet. That's what I had for breakfast. I had a couple lamb patties and I had a big robust salad with all kinds of yummy veggie ingredients with some avocado and olive oil. And that was my breakfast for today. Number two, walk 15 to 30 minutes after lunch and dinner. Now, if you had to pick one, after dinner. I know you've heard me say this a million times, but this will make a huge difference. And even more so, let's say you are like, I got to have that dessert, whether it's after lunch or dinner. And I recommend if you're going to have dessert, that's number three, actually, I'm going into number three, is have it after lunch and then go take a walk. But even if you have dessert after dinner, make sure you take a walk after that dessert. I will make a massive difference on blood sugar levels because those muscles are gonna just soak all of that sugar and that glucose up. Number three, pretty much what I just said, eat your fruit or your dessert or your protein bar or your kind bar, or whatever it may be, your smoothie with a ton of fruit in it at the end of a meal instead of on its own as a snack or for breakfast. So if you're gonna have dessert, the ideal time for dessert, and I have a short episode on this as well that I just did a couple weeks ago, it's really after lunch 
After you have a lunch with protein, tons of fiber, tons of healthy fats, then have the dessert after lunch and then go take a 20 to 30 minute walk, right? So I would say that first half of your lunch period, have the yummy, healthy, you know, protein, fiber, fat focused meal, then have that little dessert, whatever that is. And then the second half of that lunch period, that 30 minutes, just go for a walk. All right. Number four. Cut out all liquid sugar found in beverages. I'm talking sweet teas, frappuccinos, vanilla lattes, stevia sodas, sugar-filled sodas, sports drinks, orange juice, or any juice, any juice that's got sugar fructose in it, right? So many of the smoothie places that I go and check out, they lead with apple juice or orange juice, right? So avoid all that. Milkshakes, fruit smoothies, chocolate milk, the list goes on and on and on and on. Margaritas, fruity alcoholic drinks, name it. So cut out the liquid sugar. It's going to make a massive difference because liquid sugar will spike your blood sugar within like 15 to 30 minutes. It's almost impossible to get in front of. Number five, dress and or combine your carbs and starchy foods with protein, healthy fats, and fiber. So consider eating your carbs last. If you're going to go in order, I would go protein or fiber, then fats and carbs, or just protein, fiber, fats, and then the carbs at the end. And if you really find yourself insulin sensitive, especially our glucose levels are very sensitive at night, honestly, I would avoid eating carbs for dinner. I would just focus protein, healthy fats, and lots and lots of fiber. That would be the name of the game. For me, that is very much the name of the game. I find that anytime I eat carbs for dinner, it all goes to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> so unless I go on like a 30 plus minute walk, I already know I've got a level of insulin resistance that I'm working on right now. And these are the lifestyle strategies that have made the biggest difference. Now as a bonus, consider drinking one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar with water or taking my glucose support supplement in the morning to kickstart your day and then five minutes before and up to 30 minutes after carbs or a sugary and starchy meal. Now, I personally recommend taking my glucose support, which is a game changer. The berberine, the cinnamon, the fenugreek. I mean, there are so many powerhouse herbs in that blend, but I recommend taking it in the morning right before breakfast and then right before dinner. And if you do that, you will also steadily begin to manage all aspects of metabolic syndrome and reduce insulin resistance and post-meal blood glucose levels, which is a big, big win. Now with these strategies, your blood sugar levels will become more and more stable and you will experience a number of benefits like less cravings, less feeling hangry and hungry, less mood swings, and then the benefits, more energy, more brain function, more just feeling like you've got, you know, energy left in the tank to go do things with your friends after work on a Friday, (laughs) or you have energy on the weekends to go play, do sports, you wake up energized, like that is what you will feel when you have stable blood sugar levels and you're not going on that blood sugar roller coaster. So what I recommend is of the five plus the bonus, I'll have the link to the glucose support inside of the show notes, but of the five, which one are you down to start today? Or which one are you down to start tomorrow? Because I'll tell you what, you know, as you tackle one of these at a time and you begin to add these to your repertoire, it will change your entire metabolic landscape. And that is what I want for you so much because you will feel a difference in your body. Like I've been feeling a difference in mine. 
So thank you so much for listening in on the Essentially You podcast. This show is always about providing tools to rock your hormones and feel amazing in your body. Now, if there's someone in your life that needs to hear this today, like if you've got a friend or a family member who is struggling with blood sugar or struggling with energy or struggling with brain function or hangriness, holler at them, let them know. Take a screenshot, share the episode or the link via text message or share it on Insta, right? And if you do, I want you to hashtag hormone CEO. Until the next episode, have an amazing day.